to Voices of Christianity podcast. Noam, would you please um, tell us about this particular episode? It's a very special one. Yeah, so welcome everyone to this episode of Voices of World Christianity. This episode is taking place in October, and in the UK, October is Black History Month. And when we were thinking about ideas and who we should invite on, um, we kind of wanted to do something to mark Black History Month in the UK. But we also wanted to do something that kind of went beyond the usual oppression and slavery narratives that kind of so often tend to dominate discussions around Black History Month, at least where we are in the UK. So we kind of got to thinking and looking around for guests that we could invite on. And we thought of Dr. Kimberly D. Hill, who's at the University of Texas. We kind of figured that her research on African-American missionaries and Black internationalism would be a perfect fit for this podcast. So Dr. Hill, we're so excited that you could be here with us today. Welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. That's all right. So yeah, let's kick things off. Dr. Hill, would you like to say a few words of introduction, um, say a bit about your background, what you're studying, where you're from, that kind of stuff? What kind of brings you to this research area? What brings me to this research area is starting way back when I was an undergrad at University of Texas at Austin. One of my friends started a chapter of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship specifically for for African-American students. And when I got involved, it made me curious to to understand why other Protestant Christian groups were created or eventually separated based on racial or ethnic identities. So I wrote my senior honors thesis based on researching that topic through our current group and then also in historical perspective. When I got to graduate school, I wanted to continue that type of work. And I noticed pretty quickly that missionaries were the ones who were most likely to be talking about racial identity, race relations, and how how it influenced and played into defining their ministries. I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for my master's and PhD, studied with Fitz Brundage, and from him learned a lot of valuable strategies and methods for analyzing historical memory and studying the U.S. South. I also was mentored by Grant Wacker, one of the leading figures in the study of missions history. And he helped me very much in learning how to combine my interest in Southern history and African-American history with recognizing the historiography of missions history and missiology and theology. Through my colleagues that I met while working with Grant Wacker at Duke Divinity School, that's how I also learned about the Yale Edinburgh group. And that's how I got the very distinct pleasure of being able to visit Edinburgh Divinity School and attend conferences and become part of this very impressive and very supportive community of scholars. And that's how I got introduced to world Christianity. Great. Thank you. So we were wondering if you could please provide a brief summary of your latest book, which is titled A Higher Mission, The Careers of Alonzo and Althea Brown Edmonston in Central Africa. Um, That came out in 2020. Um, Would you be able to give us a brief summary of that, please? Yes. My book analyzes historically Black education through the professional lives of two African-American missionaries who served in Congo between 1902 and 1940. The first two chapters introduce major trends and goals that influenced these two leaders and their colleagues and their academic communities in the United States, as well as the region around the American Presbyterian Congo mission. Then the next three chapters focus on the innovative strategies that Althea Brown and Alonzo Edmiston developed 
in their search to be efficient missionaries and efficient ministers and teachers. Part of my argument is that some of their strategies originated through interpretations of curriculum and traditions at historically Black colleges and universities, but I also see innovation through the couple's willingness to adjust their plans to fit the interests and needs and goals of the African villagers and church members who they were interacting with on a daily basis. So my book is a biography in the sense of introducing you to the lives, the careers, and even the, the current family members of the Edmistons, uh, their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. But I also want to treat them partly as a symbol of, of this broader story of historically Black colleges and universities having international influence that uh, should be recognized and traced further. I was kind of flipping through some of your writing there, uh, as well as um, your uh, dissertation from UNC. And it was really interesting, you know, your um, kind of process of researching these missionaries. I was wondering, could you speak a little more about the process of doing this kind of research? And what were some of the challenges, maybe um, some of the most rewarding parts of this process? Well, I'll, I'll go step by step in answering that question and start with my, my master's thesis. So I wrote my master's thesis about a Southern Baptist missionary named Martha Foster Crawford. And that experience was valuable for me because it introduced me to the skills that I was going to need to, to be able to eventually write a book about, about people who had abundant records but had generally not been covered in much previous academic history, that they had chapters written about them, but I, I needed to be able to justify expanding their story into a whole book. What Martha Foster Crawford offered me in terms of, of scholarly skills was that she had a diary that was available in, in full, full text at the Duke Library Special Collection. And reading through her diary, then comparing it with existing scholarship about her and about her husband, getting to know the scholars who had written about her previously, including Wayne Flint and Carol Ann Vaughn Cross, who wrote, wrote a dissertation about, about her. That gave me translatable skills in accessing archives and knowing how to take notes in categorizing information knowing how to how to fit my ideas into the existing scholarship and noticing when I was contributing something something to existing scholarship. I learned how to compare historical narratives because there were so many very strong, sometimes competing stories about what made Southern Baptist missionaries important or what made them controversial, especially in terms of race relations in the denomination overall. And through her family, I started thinking about the practical impact of my writing while, while discussing Martha Foster Crawford. One of her, her relatives got in touch with me before I finished grad school and just wanted to know what her Aunt Martha would think about her going to China and, and getting involved in a missions project. So that was an introduction to something that I didn't know was going to happen to me later, that I'd be spending time with, with the relatives of the people I was researching. But I'm grateful for her asking me and for the opportunity to think about what the missionary's legacy could mean in terms of practicalities for their relatives, in terms of try trying to define value academically, 
also spiritually. Yeah, that's really cool. So this relative of the Crawford, they first reached out to you? She reached out to my advisor, Fitz Brundage, after she found out the title of my master's thesis on the website. Yeah. And then then I was able to to send an email reply and to give her the best perspective on Martha, Martha Crawford's voice that I could based on having spent time with her documents. That's so amazing. I, can, I imagine personally for me, it would be a little bit humbling because you're like, oh goodness, like that's a lot of authority and a lot of responsibility for me to kind of interpret what I would read as, yeah. It's a lot of responsibility and it means I have to take the responsibilities of my field seriously. A reminder that every opinion I give, every statement I have has got to be based in my best attempts to interpret correctly and to be accurate mm. than to make sure that the voices of these people are, are what gets highlighted, not necessarily my voice. So yeah, master's thesis, my foray into really working with physical documents and noticing historical narratives, being able to engage with the particular details of a missionary while also thinking about the broader story of a sometimes controversial denomination and and thinking about it during a controversial time during she she's in China during the Civil War and thinking about Reconstruction and the fall of Reconstruction, the rise of the Jim Crow era, how all of that is leading to segregation among American Baptists or I should say Southern Baptists and the National Baptist Convention. So those skills, they then went on to to influence what I would choose to do when I was introduced to Southern Presbyterians. And the introduction came through Dr. Sylvia Jacobs of North Carolina Central University. She was one of the foremost voices on African-American missions history. Uh, She wrote many of the publications that kept the topic in the forefront, especially in the, the 1980s, but going up through the end of her life up through the 2010s. And she she suggested to me that I should take a closer look at Mariah Fury, the, the oldest serving uh, Southern Presbyterian missionary who was born into slavery, who had worked with a team of African-American missionaries in Congo. I took her suggestion and that suggestion has led to the biggest adventure of my life. So I, I, always, I will always be grateful for her taking that chance on talking to to a grad student on taking the chance that I would I would be serious about going where I needed to go to find the records that could represent the perspective of this extraordinary always fascinating person Mariah Fearing and then through going to Talladega College to find records about Mariah Fearing that's when I met the other archivist who would change my academic life the archivist at, at Talladega College Special Collections uh, said, well, since you're here looking for things about Mariah Fearing, I, I have this box of microfilm of journals written by, by Alonzo Edmiston. He was there in Congo, too. You should take a look at these. And yeah, in this case, the, the rest was literally history. I couldn't read the whole diary at that one time while I was about to finish my dissertation, but I, but I knew that someday I would. And because they were at Talladega, that was my first hint that this story was going to have to include the places where the African-American missionaries came from, not just the places they went to. I I had to talk about why they felt so connected to historically Black colleges that Alonzo Edmiston's relatives would choose to to leave a copy of his records there. Why would they keep returning 
to to Fisk University or to Stillman? Why did they see that as the future of of the missions endeavor? Uh, so all that to say, a lot of of my research strategy came from me hitting different levels of understanding the perspectives of of these missionaries and seeing that that perspective wasn't just about what they were doing overseas, but who they cared about back in the United States, what was going on with the people back in the United States, and how they thought their work abroad could still communicate with those international issues. Yeah, it's quite interesting that you were, you were studying fearing, and then you know you got this box for Alonzo, right? So in your research, did they uh, come into contact? Did they ever work together? Yeah, Mariah Fearing mentored Althea Brown and Alonzo Edmiston. Yeah, they cool. they were they were in Congo for hmm, about six years of direct mentorship. After that, then then they would still interact because they all kept a home base in Alabama, overseas or or in the U.S. They could still keep some kind of family connection. I'm really appreciating this theme of family connection and legacy that kind of seems to be coming up in our conversation from um, Martha Crawford's niece contacting you to the work that you were doing with the um, descendants of um, Edmonston and and Brown. Um, You mentioned earlier, you were talking about the importance of paying attention to the voices of the people that you're studying. So could you say a bit more about who Athea and um, Alonzo were as people? What, What drew you to them that you wanted to study them for the next few years? What drew me to to Alonzo Edmiston's journals was the amount of emotion and personality that that he was putting into into this record. I could tell pretty early on that he meant for this to be a professional account, something that he hoped he he would be able to edit and publish someday as evidence of his effective work overseas. But he wasn't afraid to to put his feelings about his his wife and his children and about his home and sometimes about racial prejudice in into that that professional account and he was also writing almost every day partly for for practical reasons uh, since he was expected to to do agricultural work for much of his career he was also using his journal as an almanac tracking tracking rainfall uh, tracking the progress of the crops, but it had been very unusual for me to find records from, in his case, I think I started with the year 1916 to find records from over a hundred years ago of somebody saying, I'm having a blue day because my wife has gone, gone home. She, she went back to see her family and took the baby and I haven't received a letter in months and I don't know how they're doing. I'm not going to be able to to preach today. We just sat in the church and we all shared our our tales of woe. And we gave testimonies and we prayed for each other. And they, I'm sad. And they know I'm sad and they're sad too. That kind of raw rawness, that that kind of love, I I couldn't turn away from that. And to respect that part of his voice. I was focused pretty early on on making this book a love story to the extent that I could tell Alonzo Edmiston and Althea Brown were expressing their love for each other through their commitment to find ways to stay, stay on the mission field. Their love for each other was about making sure that they they could accomplish their individual dreams 
and they're going to help each other do it. That individual dream was was going to involve not having to stay in the United States, not being limited by other people's expectations for them. That's a really beautiful story. That's a really, because I was, yeah, I was in preparing for this um, episode. I remember I came across another podcast episode that you did that you said you didn't want it to become purely about the racism that they endured and you kind of wanted to kind of do justice to their to their commitment to each other and their commitment to their mission field so yeah let me say a little more about althea brown since Mm -hmm. i since i started with with alonzo's perspective althea was very much an academic she graduated top of her class from fisk university the leading hbcu for classical studies and she majored in in classics specialized in in greek and latin continued to promote classics through throughout her life used that experience to practice linguistics abroad to write the first dictionary and grammar of one of the the local african languages her book is called The Dictionary and Grammar of the Bushonga Language, and it's a, it's based on the Kuba people. So what fascinated me, especially about Althea Brown, was that she continued to think of herself as an academic, as an authority, even when that kind of status did not prove advantageous to her uh, setting, to her long-term career goals. She was explicitly challenged for seeming seeming to think too much of herself, that this was a reason cited unofficially, but still but still cited as a reason for for thinking that she should be removed and was removed from the mission field with the expectation from denominational leaders that she was not going to return after 1908. She did return, but she didn't give up on thinking that she had something academic to contribute, whether or not that that acknowledgement made people uncomfortable, that she kept that approach throughout her life and that she did it in partnership with somebody who did not think of himself as much as much as an academic, but somebody who wanted to make sure that her status never got diminished. I think that is just personally impressive and also academically fascinating. Yeah, that's really, really interesting character. <laughs> Must be really exciting to explore as an academic too, right? Looking at an academic of the past. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak a little more, Dr. Hill, on the, um, our listeners may not be um, so sure about uh, what their work was like. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? So I have to start by talking about their colleagues because Althea Brown and Alonzo Edmiston were part of the second wave of African-American missionaries to the Congo Free State. They were reinforcing uh, ministry pattern strategies that had been set by the Reverend William Henry Shepard, by his wife, Lucy Gant Shepard, by Mariah Fearing, Lillian Thomas, by Henry Hawkins and Joseph Phipps. So these were earlier missionaries. And I'll also mention the Reverend A.A. Rochester, and Annie Catherine Taylor, they they came, they started arriving in Congo in the mid 1890s. And they were there at a time when truly heinous things were happening around them. The first human rights campaign was moving into full swing. British and American activists trying to work together to pressure King Leopold II of Belgium to give up sole control of Congo Free State to stop 
endorsing the torture, killing, displacement of people, uh, all of which was was fueling a very lucrative rubber industry. The Congo mission was founded in a part of Central Africa that had little exposure to to Western visitors before then, and it that the mission was part of increasing that exposure, part of uh, creating a reason to bring in roads and trains, more infrastructure that could make it easier to make some kind of profit off of that part of of Congo. The first wave of African-American missionaries were building and expanding the, the, the mission stations for the Southern Presbyterian Church, but they were also helping to build the case that the abuse, the killing of local people couldn't be ignored, couldn't possibly be reconciled with with attempts to expand the church. Both issues had to be addressed simultaneously. So William Henry Shepard becomes known as one of the people who gathers evidence and is able to, to bring enough international pressure to force King Leopold to allow some political reform. Alonzo Edmiston thinks of himself as having some diplomatic role of working with with Belgian authorities, working with European traders, and working with with African chiefs and princes and kings because he's he's trying to carry on Shepard's role after after the Reverend Shepard returns to the United States. Althea Brown is teaching children. She's translating the Cuba language. Uh, she is promoting storytelling, and she's starting a Fisk Jubilee-style choir at the Congo Mission, doing those things because she sees herself as carrying on the work of Lucy Gant Shepherd and of Lillian Thomas and Mariah Fearing, the work that they had done to help protect children from, from being forced into the rubber fields from being sold in the internal slave trade, from being tortured, uh, and work that that the first wave of missionaries had done to try to literally preserve a culture, to to keep the Cuba nation or the Cuba kingdom from being disrupted, displaced, and destroyed through colonial exploitation. Uh, so specific things that the Edmisons were doing um, Preaching, teaching, taking in foster children, writing a dictionary, and also doing agricultural work, running a farm. Those things had practical practical implications for the mission, but in general, they, the Edmistons also saw them as, as ways to carry on the traditions of their, their mentors and to hopefully keep keep a sphere of influence open so that African-American missions in Congo could become a tradition to be passed on. They sound like they were really at the heart of a lot of different activities and um, circles, right? Yes. I think it was very important to them to think of themselves as, as connected to something else Mm -hmm. that they William Henry Shepard was known as a pioneer and explorer. They, they weren't going as much for that kind of reputation. They, they wanted to be the people who continued things. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't want to be the, the last long-serving African-American missionaries in Congo. I'm so fascinated by um, 
their presence in Congo. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how do you think they saw they and other African American missionaries um, saw themselves in relation to the people that they were serving in Congo? Did they was there a sense of a return to um, the place where their ancestors came from, or did, were their identities very firmly rooted in America through their links to historically black colleges, uh, historically black colleges? Or I think you can see different stages mm-hmm. in in how they perceive themselves. So. The, their mentors, the, the people who went in the 1890s, they were more likely to, to think of Africa in general as a place where they would have a special commitment to serve and, and a place where they believed they could contribute spiritually and culturally. They're also more likely to fit into the type of patterns of cultural, cultural stereotypes a culture, a culturation a style ministry that uh, that have been studied pretty thoroughly in in mission scholarship. The such as the traditions of woman's work for woman, uh, as explained by by Dana Robert, the idea that American women could get authority on the mission field through the extent that they they would try to change. African, Asian, or Latin American women may have them adapt to Western standards. So African-American missionaries were expressing those kind of sentiments and fitting into those, those kind of goals, especially in the 1890s through, through the 1920s, I'd say. I see some changes in that approach with, with the Edmistons and those those changes came maybe not so much intentionally, not, not through this general sense that African-American missionaries had, that they had, they had some special responsibility for Africa. But I see it in, in how local people, the, the villagers, the new church members, the ministers, how they started taking special responsibility for the African-Americans who came to their community, how they started telling Althea and Alonzo that your children are part of our community now. Your, your son will have the name, my name, the name of the prince, that you're, no matter, no matter if your children have to go back to the United States, no matter if we don't see them again, they will always be part of the Cuba kingdom. And then that meant that meant a lot to Alonzo Edmiston, especially in those blue days when he was missing his family, to know that there there were other people who also felt motivated to to miss his people too, uh, to feel that it was their responsibility to to keep caring about when when his when his son might return or to keep the name the memory of his sons alive even when they didn't return anymore. So um, I think. Because of African traditions, such as the naming tradition, that the Edmistons started to find find a different type of of connection to to African culture and a different approach to ministry to think eventually by the end of the 1930s, both of them were talking about about incorporating some types of of local traditions into how they ran, ran the church and not doing it sp- based on ideas that they came up with, but 
really getting down to the brass tacks of this is what is important to local people. Then they want they want to hear information from the elders. They want to be able to tell stories in this kind of way. So this is the proper way for us to to expand the church based on on what local people want to do. Althea was already showing unique levels of recognition for local culture through her dictionary, but it really started to come together in the 1930s when when I think the Edmistons really started to relax into feeling like this is our family. That's really beautiful in that kind of very nuanced picture that you painted of um, the kind of role of missionary, which I think is one of the Certainly for me, it was one of the unexpected uh, advantages or one of the things I did not expect to kind of really learn until I discovered what Christianity is a field, which is a much more nuanced and complicated picture of missionaries um, Mm. in their mission fields than the popular understanding might have been, which kind of leads me on to my next question, which is um, perhaps quite slightly uh, controversial, but... um, I was wondering if you see a tension between the very notion of African-American missionaries and the role of Christianity in things such as colonialism, slavery, racially, racial injustice, et cetera. So in asking this question, I'm thinking here of those who might dismiss Christianity as purely a white man's religion, um, or perhaps a more extreme view could be that these African-American missionaries were colluding. So I was wondering if you kind of came across anything like that. And I was also thinking about how in your book, you kind of talked about that with the growth of the native church, the couple then became occasionally a scapegoat or a way for um, uh, some other people to kind of show African resistance to colonial power. So I was wondering if you could talk more about, is there a tension? Is that, is there not, et cetera? So I'm, I'm going to answer this in general before I talk about the specifics of, of ch- chapter five. So I do see tension in drawing academic attention and drawing attention of audiences to this topic of African-American mission history. I see that tension because of of historical narratives that connect missions to colonialism and white supremacy and acculturation. I don't see that tension as being connected directly to the identities or the goals of African-American missionaries themselves. So that's how I'm clarifying the, the, the question. There's a tension about the topic that comes from, from our frameworks of where, where we think information about missions history has to fit in order to seem, seem important. Those frameworks can say a lot about our perspectives in the 21st century. They can also say a lot about the historiography of of our discipline about the reasons why world Christianity is developing as a field. But we have to remember that the actual people that we are studying aren't necessarily defined by by the frameworks that that we're using. Uh, So the way way I thought of it ahead of time was to say that the the African-American missionaries brought spiritual and academic goals that were rooted in emancipatory dreams, uh, going back to the founding of historically black colleges and universities by people who often were literally just, just getting their freedom from, from enslavement in the United States and using 
every resource they had in terms of time, time, money, tools to be able to build a place that could outlive them, a place where people could get literacy, could get a chance to, to leave the land, to establish a lifestyle on their own terms. And missionaries who were graduating from these HBCUs, they're carrying that same kind of drive with them, that they're, wherever they go, their ministry is going to be part of, of expressing and celebrating freedom. And then layered onto that is, are their, their visions of promoting some sense of African diasporic solidarity, not, not all the time identifying directly with African people, but acknowledging the possibility that the African diaspora could, could defy expectations, could, could be seen as more than, than being destined to do labor to enrich other people or, or being destined for inferiority. So the strategies for accomplishing those kind of goals and dreams, they differed across groups, differed across individuals, and there were uh, various stages in, in how people would try to accomplish that. But African-American missionaries, they shared a general status as symbols of alternatives to the dehumanization of people of color. And they shared a general status as leaders who were motivated to acknowledge African voices and to keep that acknowledgement going over a long, a long period of time, including encouraging and sponsoring students, uh, visitors from, from Africa to come to the United States and, and to build partnerships. Uh, so the way I'd summarize all that is to say, my research indicates African-American missionaries had some, some ambitions some dreams and goals and some symbolism that defied, uh, defied this common, uh, common historical narrative of missions being connected in an oversimplified way to colonialism, white supremacy, cultural imperialism. That narrative can be complicated by, by examples such as these. And I think, I think it ought to be to give us the chance to recognize some other, some other aspects that we can learn uh, about African-American missionaries, but also about the local people, um, about things that they, things and initiatives that they had, uh, that they cared about that were just overlooked. Through, through zeal to focus on whether or not colonial ambitions were being, were being pursued. I, I think the records of African-American missionaries can make it easier to, to help us see some of these, these other voices, other goals that have been overlooked, partly because African-American missionaries were used to being overlooked themselves and they felt highly motivated to to try to make alliances, to, to listen to local people and see, see what professional advantages could come from that. Okay. So now chapter five, jo jumping into this, this issue of 
of how it actually played out for the Edmistons. So by the 1930s, Alonzo Edmiston is in the final decade of his career, but it's not looking it's not looking like his career is necessarily getting any additional stability. The, the denomination is, is racially segregated. Increasingly, the mission station is racially segregated. He's feeling isolated more from his white colleagues and feeling like his status as a teacher is tenuous, that he's being that the mission station is defining him solely by his ability to, to supervise African laborers on a farm. He does not want to think of himself that way. He's a seminary graduate. He wants to think of himself as, as a minister. And he hopes that his connections to, to African church members can help him continue that view of himself. The problem that arises is with the African pastors uh, who feel that they're being cut out the more that Alonzo Edmiston tries to assert his, his connection and his authority with, with the local African church. Um, Alonzo Edmiston feels that, that it's a net, a net positive when he can come up with ideas such as endorsing local church members' desire to pay tithes with fruit, fruit and vegetables from their garden instead of instead of with cash. He, he sees that as a way to recognize what local people want, to work it into Southern Presbyterian policy, and then also show that he's, he's innovating, he's doing something special. African pastors see, see it as Alonzo Edmiston's attempt to control what they do with their own congregations and to generally micromanage. And the more that, that these African pastors can successfully complain about the African-American missionary, can get the white, mis- the white missionaries of the Congo mission to take Alonzo Edmiston down a notch, to challenge his ideas, to take away some of his control. That is helping to boost African leadership within the Congo mission, even just through the, the literal part of them being able to speak at a mission meeting. That was a relatively new, uh, a new opportunity and freedom that had not been, had not been offered um, before 1919 to African ministers at the Congo mission. So they're, they're stars on the rise. They are getting more leadership opportunities, more, more status, partly because they have an opportunity to challenge, challenge an American missionary effectively. That opportunity comes through, through changes in race relations among the Americans. Thank you, Dr. Hill. You, that was really helpful. You, I, I really appreciate how you talked about the, some of the challenges or some of the nuances that we need to give to modern you know paradigms of looking at the past so i think it's really helpful and the details you provide about the mission field only a historian like you would be able to provide for us that's great and you did want to speak about archival silence and i'm sure a lot of us do want to hear about that so could you tell us a little bit about that what 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 are you referring to and what are some of the challenges that it brings about when doing research thank you 
I'm referring to a book by Michelle Rolf Trulot. It's called Silencing the Past. And I was introduced to it this summer by, by Dr. Asa Lee of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. It's been a very useful theory for, uh, for helping me explain the, the significance of African-American uh, missions work for world Christianity, for thinking about connections to, uh, to black internationalism and to Southern history. Uh, on a more general level, it, it helps me explain or helps me answer this, the question I usually get of, wow, I didn't know there were black missionaries. Uh, why don't people talk about that more? So uh, I can identify that gap as, as an archival silence, as, as a topic that has been either overlooked or trivialized or use, used as a marker to something else that the field defines as more, as more significant. Uh, Trulow writes about, about this issue specifically in, in relation to silence about the Haitian Revolution, but he, uh, he identifies the, the big discursive framework around his field as a historical narrative promoting Western, Western global dominance and any topics that seem to challenge or to to not fit with with a story of rising Western dominance. Those stories tend to either be completely ignored, such as previous history books about the age of revolutions, not mentioning the Haitian Revolution, or, or they will mention the Haitian Revolution only for the purpose of focusing on, on the development of France. If for my field, African-American missionaries tend to be mentioned more when they're serving an existing debate about whether or not colonialism was right or wrong, whether or not mis all missionaries were boosting and supporting colonialism, whether or not African people were completely overwhelmed by, by Western global dominance. I'm excited about being part of this podcast, about being part of the field of world Christianity, because I think African-American missionaries sources and, and the work coming from those of us who study them can have more to say about global South influence on the development of Christianity, uh, about the stories that have been trivialized or overlooked while people just kept focusing on what Americans were doing, what, what the British were doing, whether their ideas worked or not. I, yeah, the I, listeners can't hear us, but I can't see us, but we're both nodding our heads. <laughs> yeah. So we'll say amen to that. <laughs> yeah, but I'm very glad to be part, part of this field. And I'm really looking forward to learning more as well as contributing more. Thank you so much. Um, before we finally close off, I was wondering if you had any other further or closing thoughts to share because I mentioned in our, you mentioned in our conversation before we started the recording that your recent McClure lectures at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary had given you a lot of things to, to, to think about and things that you wanted to share. So I thought it'd give you some space if you'd like that. Oh, I've already shared most of, of oh, my thoughts great. that came from, from the McClure lectures. Mm -hmm. uh, 
My, my next research agendas include studying the African-Americans who worked and traveled with the YMCA and the YWCA during the mid 20th century. Wow. The, the idea was inspired by the Edmistons because a YMCA job was proposed to Alonzo Edmiston as a way to, to get him to stop trying to go back to Congo. <laughs> yeah, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't keen on, on giving up on his dream, mm-hmm. but it, did, it made me really curious about uh, learning, learning, the other, learning about the others who did overseas work or, or shifted to another type of career through the YMCA, through this ecumenical organization that will still give them a chance to have international connections Mm -hmm. while working with historically Black colleges, and increasingly through the mid-20th century, using those uh, ministerial connections to directly challenge Jim Crow and, Mm -hmm. and racial violence. Wow. That sounds fascinating. Well, I do hope we'll have you back on the podcast once you've got all your findings from, from oh. that next research project. That would be great. We look forward to that, uh, your research yeah. finding. Thank you. I'll Thank be you. happy to return. <laughs> great. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Hill. That has been a really fascinating conversation that I hope our listeners enjoyed um, the kind of exploration of the nuances of doing mission work in the quite a heated context at the um, Edmondson and, and Brown were in. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. We've really enjoyed uh, having you here. Same. Thank you for what both of you do. I'm excited to, to see how you contribute to this field. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, listeners back home. Um, do keep your eyes and ears tuned as much as you can um, for our next podcast. So this will be out in a few days and then we'll have one in November. And in December, we are planning a very special dis- Christmas themed one, which I'm so excited for because um, it's my favorite holiday. So thank you so much. Um, and you will hear from us soon. Bye.